Good morning. I'm Danny. I'm a programmer by day, elder by night, and weekends. So um, I'm a little nervous to be up here, actually a lot of bit nervous, but I'm also really excited to have this opportunity to share um, this text and to dive through it and dig through it together. So let's get started. Please open up in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. For years, I have approached the Bible with the intent of studying and learning from Scripture, only to walk away frustrated and empty-handed. At times, it felt like my eyes were blind and my ears were deaf to anything I was seeing or reading. Sure, sometimes there would be little nuggets of gold found, but honestly, it didn't seem like it was worth the effort I was putting in. And so I would stop putting in effort until I felt guilty enough to try again and continue this disappointing cycle. Jesus rescued me from this in two ways. The first was by him giving me a greater understanding of his heart as compassionate, loving, gentle, and welcoming. It turns out that knowing Jesus as someone you want to know makes you want to know him more. And the second is a simpler practice that we'll be doing right now. And this is to invite God to speak to us through his word. You see, the underlying assumption under all my previous effort was that the word of God is a gold mine waiting to be excavated through my own labor. But this goes against Hebrews 4.12 when it calls the word alive and active, saying the word itself judges the heart. This is not inert material that we dig through, but instead God's words that he speaks to us. And here I was, wrapped up in the pride and arrogance of trying to gain my own understanding, closing my ears to the very thing I was trying to study. So when I finally began to practice repentance through the spiritual discipline of saying, quite literally, God, please speak to me, I finally found the king's treasure I had been searching for. In light of that, let us pray before we get to today's scripture. Heavenly Father, how can I begin to describe how wonderful you are? You, the maker who spoke the nations into existence, and who remains sovereign over every ruler in this world. Nothing escapes your loving gaze. And yet we still think of ourselves high enough to try and make a name for ourselves. As we humble ourselves, please speak to us through your word. We repent of having tried to fill our hungry hearts with the things of this world and with the fruits of our own labor. Please make us hungry for your truth and insatiate that hunger as we study it today. In your name we pray. Amen. And now, Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayers and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Let's pause there. The rest of this chapter is a single prayer from Daniel, and with it, we're going to answer two questions today. First off, how do we pray? And the answer will be by looking at how Daniel prayed and applying his principles. We're hitting here on a spiritual discipline, and I know from talking to y'all that many of us have a collective sense of not praying enough. So we're going to take this bull by the horns and and tackle here in a little bit the question that hangs over all of our heads. How do we pray more? 
Now, I think I just hit on a sensitive nerve here with this question. After all, we are talking about spiritual disciplines, which is a topic rife with guilt and shame. So bear with me. I'm going to do my best to be gentle and gracious once we get to it. But we're not there yet. So let's start off at the beginning of this text, Daniel 9, 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Amid. Chronologically, where are we? This puts us back in Daniel 6, you know, the whole lion's den debacle. Quick recap, in case you were out with COVID a few weeks ago when Colton preached on that, Darius is made king. Darius appoints a whole bunch of satraps, also known as governors, over the kingdom, and then appoints Daniel and two other others as overseers of them. Daniel, being a man of God, rises to the top. Those other overseers and governors, they don't like this, but they can't find any fault in Daniel, so they set up a trap, telling Darius, Oh, Darius, make it so that no one can pray or petition to any god or any man other than you. It's in your best interest. And Darius is like, Ah, sure, that's a great idea, and signs it into law. Daniel still prays to God. The governors turn Daniel in. Darius is sad, but throws him to the lions. God rescues Daniel. Darius is happy and glorifies God. We all know it as the Daniel and the lions den story, but it really is a story of the disciplined, discipline of a faith-filled man of God. Here's the crux of the story in Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. As he had done previously, Daniel is something like 80 years old and has been consistently setting aside dedicated prayer time three times a day. And so here we are with this question burning guilt in our hearts. Do I pray enough? How do I pray more? Am I even praying the right way? And God drops this stalwart man in the pages of scripture before us. This same man who is listed over in the book of Ezekiel as having righteousness compared to Noah and Job. That's a lot. As my daughter's Jesus Storybook Bible points out, the Bible isn't a book full of heroes, but it does have some. Daniel, through the work of God in his life, is one of them, and God gives us his example to learn from. Okay, we've got the historical context out of the way, and Daniel seems like a fitting man to study. Now, what are the events leading up to this prayer? God kept this nice and short for us in just one verse, Daniel 9.2. I found the verse to be a little thick in our normal ESV translation, though, so let's revisit this with an easier translation, like the NCV. During Darius's first year as king, I, Daniel, was reading the scriptures. I saw that the Lord told Jeremiah that Jerusalem would be empty ruins for 70 years. <clears throat> Daniel's reading from the book of Jeremiah here, and then what? He doesn't just seek the Lord by prayer, but also... Daniel 9.3, please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This is where we build out the first answer to how do I pray? By recognizing that you need God. Looking at Daniel's response to reading this prophecy, what is it that Daniel is reading here that would evoke such a serious response? Remember, Jeremiah is not a warm and fuzzy prophet, and we find two cross-references here that Daniel would have had access to. Jeremiah 25.8 starts off like you'd expect. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words 
and comes with stern judgment down through verse 11. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This continues with a promise to punish the Babylonians with God's justice after those years, but we don't see restoration promised to the Israelites until a few chapters later. And so that first one was harsh, but here the loving tone of God gush forth in this section, picking up in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We even see God protecting them in verses 8 and 9 when he warns of false prophets who promise an easier road with false peace. And now verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Daniel is praying because he knows God put him here, even as hard as it's been. Daniel is face down because he knows that God has promised restoration. Daniel is covered in ashes and on his hands and knees because he knows that God is loving and kind. Daniel knows the rebellion of his ancestors and yet still sees how God lovingly offers grace and hope to his chosen people. Don't forget that Daniel is 80-something years old here. And remember that back in the first chapter of Daniel, we saw him carried off when he was a youth. We're getting awfully close to that 70-year time frame for this promised deliverance. And he's been able to see over his lifetime how God has been faithful to his ongoing promise to preserve enough of a remnant to restore them from captivity. Daniel sees God as greater than he because he has seen God's faithfulness. Both of these scenarios compound to, get, to drive Daniel to pray, both a felt need of God's goodness and a felt need of God to fulfill his promise. So, I said earlier that you pray by recognizing that you need God, but you recognize that you need him by seeing him as so much greater. We're always, we're always tempted to view ourselves as greater, be it by some sin and weakness that we see as ruling over our lives or by coming to the idea that we are actually without flaw. In both cases, God knows this of us. He knows our bents, and so God gives us his words so that we can know him better. This reminds me of the wonderful classic Christmas movie, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Listen, I make a point to watch it every year. And just like in the book, there's a scene where Ebenezer Scrooge meets the ghost of Christmas present. This jolly giant of a ghost bellows to Scrooge, Come in and know me better, man. Scrooge, despite his dour personality, can't help but be wooed by this spirit's joy. And this picture is just like God, who even in our self-righteousness comes to meet us with forgiveness and offers up the Bible so that we may come in and know him better, man. This sermon is all about the gift of prayer that we have for connecting and strengthening our relationship with God, 
But prayer itself is strengthened by knowing God through his word. If we are to be a praying people, we will need to be a reading people. Reading the scriptures becomes a way that we can begin to get the picture of God into our minds. All right, we've nailed down the historical context and the in-text context for this prayer. Now we're ready to get to the prayer itself. As I read through this, notice how Daniel talks about God and some of the things he focuses on. Starting in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us, For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Even now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Here are some quick takeaways from this prayer for us to dig through as we seek to elaborate on the answer to our first question. How do we pray? Daniel opens in praise of God. He confesses sin 
he remembers the faithfulness of the Lord, and he requests the Lord to act. Now, don't think that this is an exhaustive list or even a required list. This is a set of items that should be common in our prayers, though. So let's walk through them and see why. And heads up, a lot of the whys are going to, be, are going to boil down to a matter of discipline. This means the reasons we won't have much in terms of flashy excitement. Instilling a lift, list, the life of disciplined behavior is a slow, steady journey. Sometimes that journey has big leaps, but it's still a journey. So much like the Lord's Prayer that Jesus models for us, this prayer opens in praise of God. Opening up this way frames your conversation with God in light of how wonderful he is. We don't do this because God, because God expects us to flatter him as if we had to gain his favor before he'll hear us. God is always ready to meet with us and even delights in us drawing near to him. Now, even though Daniel doesn't spend much time in this opening, he still packs it full of relevant praise. Daniel has a big weight on his mind, and yet he still praises God for his attributes, which immediately come to mind. The great and awesome God is a God who is mighty to save, one who has the power to actually rescue the Israelites from their captors. And the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with them, who love them and keep his commandments, is a God who has promised much and has never fallen short or broken any of them, and who even remains faithful in light of the Israelites' faithlessness. We are called to love the Lord our God above all else. This means that God is the center point of our lives and likewise the center point of our prayers. Spending a moment or even a long while praising God is how we bring to the forefront of our awareness the reasons for why we think God is good. It shifts the focus for a moment away from ourselves and also gets some of that head knowledge down into our heart. And in so doing, this becomes one small step of discipline that we can apply to our lives that will cause us to grow in affection towards him. But like I said, Daniel has a big weight on his mind. One short verse of praise, and then he goes into 11 verses of confessing sin to one degree or another. Why do we need to confess our sin? God knows all things already, doesn't he? Is he just trying to get us to embarrass ourselves so that he could smugly look down on us? Absolutely not. You need to see God as greater to want to pray to him, right? Well, to do that, you need to recognize that you need a savior, that you need something to be saved from. And sin is exactly the thing that rips us away from the presence of God. It's also the poison that numbs us to its presence. We need to regularly practice confessing sin to God, to others, or else we start to become puffed up in pride. Now, let's be a little careful when we look at this text specifically for confessing sin. Daniel's confession of sin in this chapter is tied really strongly to his role as a prophet for the people of Israel. He's asking for a very specific answer to a very specific promise. Our confessions should likewise be specific to what's on our hearts. You don't need to try and confess for the entire sins of the nation of America just because you're trying to repent of some personal sin. But this whole point of confession comes back once again to discipline. And the concept of discipline is about trying to make a change to your heart. Matthew 12, 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the, ma the mouth speaks. We're trying to grow to the point that our hearts give us something uplifting and Christ-centric to say to our coworkers, 
instead of giving us curses to mutter under our breath. Even when we recognize that it is really the Spirit that makes the change on our hearts, we still have a responsibility to fill our minds with the things of God so that we can give our hearts a healthy plot of soil to thrive in. A spiritual discipline is us fulfilling that responsibility. Third, Daniel makes a point to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Explicitly stated in verse 15, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. This sort of idea is woven into his whole confession, but it comes in a chilling sentiment. Verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Why? Because the Israelites sinned, and God was right in exiling them. This is his faithfulness, because it is exactly what was promised for disobedience in that reference to the law of Moses, specifically Deuteronomy 28, but mentioned plenty of other times in the Old Testament. But still, it is, a humbling, it is humbling and should give you pause as you reckon with the notion that the suffering you're undergoing is a natural consequence of the sin you've sown. Even still, as depressing an idea as this may be, it doesn't have to define us as we move forward because we know that the Lord is rich in mercy and steadfast to the thousandth generation. He delights in forgiving us because this is how he rescues us from our sin. If you can, remember a time that the Lord has rescued you. And when you have trouble remembering, ask someone who is close to you, who you're close to, to help you remember. God has been merciful to you time and time and time again in your life. I pray that you have eyes to see it and a mind to remember it. Even remembering is a discipline in and of itself. It takes practice to get better at remembering what God has done and then recalling things to mind is one more little thing that can prepare you for the Spirit's work in your heart. Point four. Daniel requests the Lord to act. In this case, he's praying to the Lord to relent from his anger and show his promised mercy. This isn't a flippant request. Daniel knows that the Lord has spoken and he knows God to be faithful to his word. He's confident to the point of, in verse 18, when he, uses, when he says hear, using the Hebrew word shema, which means listen and obey. Can you imagine having the gall, the audacity, the chutzpah to give a command like this to God? Yet this is how confident Daniel is in God's promise. And even still, we see Daniel's heart through his words when he asks God to do it not for his own sake, but for God's sake. And Daniel backs up his request to God that this should be done not because of any of the Israelites' righteousness, but because God is so rich in mercy. Church, we have the promises of God before us. We can know with confidence that the Lord promises to save us from our sins, to spread his name to the ends of the earth, and to make his name known. We're not going to name it and claim it, but we absolutely should know it and ask for it. In so asking for the Lord to move, we position ourselves to start looking for the Lord to move. This small act of trust is yet another way we can practice discipline so that we can make way for the Spirit to get through to our stubborn hearts. All right, where are we so far? We've answered question one, how do we pray? We see our need for a Savior. We praise God. We confess our sin. We remember his faithfulness. We ask him to act on his promises, and we get to the point of being able to do all of this. 
by reading and meditating on Scripture. So now let's take on this second question that so many of us ask ourselves. How do I pray more? But to answer this question, there's another question we need to visit that we've already answered for ourselves. Do I pray enough? No, is the answer that sounds in our minds ear so often, isn't it? It's one of the many lines from that guilty song that plays in repeat in our heads way longer than any chorus of Baby Shark ever has. <laughs> and if it's not about our lack of prayer, then that song trudges on through some other line about some other inadequacy that we are ashamed of. We have to address this shame and guilt first, because if you ignore these feelings, and don't combat them with the truths of Scripture, then you'll get nowhere when you actually try and pray. And it's not because your prayers won't be listened to or heard, but because the vines of shame and guilt love to grow their thorny brambles over every piece of your heart. This is the nature of self-righteousness. When you live your life thinking that you have to fulfill in your own power Every rule and obligation the Bible or society hands you, or especially when you live thinking that you're able to, you're spreading fertilizer for those weeds to grow. When you try to overcome this by doing one more thing you think you should be doing, you're just pouring water over its leaves. You don't have to be a horticulturalist to know that plants grow when you water them. Before we talk about fighting these feelings, I want to bring to attention one piece here that I've been very careful to talk about. And this is not to call these feelings lies. How many times have you heard the lies of guilt and shame? Don't get me wrong, there are lies in this guilty song that are being sung straight from the sulfur stinking pits of hell. But these feelings you have, being able to feel shame, being able to know guilt, they're gifts from your loving Father in heaven, even if they did come as a part of the fall. Adam and Eve, knowing that they were naked in the garden, yeah, that was shame, driving them to hide and conceal themselves from God as he walked in their midst. If we now bear the knowledge of good and evil, then we must bear the knowledge of when we have committed good or evil. And that's what these feelings point us to. They were gifted to us in love, even in the face of our sins, because we need to know when we've done evil, so we can know when we need to run to God for rescue from ourselves. These feelings were grace to us to point us to him. And when these feelings are healthy, they'll be like a well-trained service dog for the blind, one who barks when you're about to walk into danger, and one who guides you through perilous paths without a scratch. But... Be it through any number of ways affiliated with our brokenness from the fall, be it our own sin or the sufferings we bear from the sins done against us, these feelings of shame and guilt grow into gremlins or dragons who end up trying to hoard every part of our hearts, telling you far too often you are worthless and far too little that you've trampled on someone else. Satan's work is in feeding us the lies that form these feelings into dragons. And yet still, in love and compassion, Jesus comes down to get to us and gives up his life to rescue us from the dragons we've nurtured. He doesn't come down in annoyance that we need to be saved, but warmly ready to rescue every one of our sin-sick hearts. Look, who, look back to who Jesus spent all his time with, all the poor and powerless, all those cast out, 
and all who lived lives rejecting God. He even pursues the self-righteous. And so, despite the no that rings in our ears, how do we answer the question of, do I pray enough? How do you tame these dragons, reducing them back to faithful servants? How do you prune back the overgrowth of these feelings that are choking you out? You pray, just like Daniel did. And you do this act of spiritual discipline because, of course, you're trying once again to get some idea from your head down into your heart. And so Daniel confessed his people's sins. Daniel didn't know Jesus, but he remembered what God had done through Moses. And Daniel clung to the promise that his people would be restored. Likewise, you confess the truthful parts of these shameful feelings that you haven't prayed as you ought to. You bring to remembrance that Christ has forgiven you before. And then you cling to promises like 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I shared in the beginning, I used to hold on to the guilt of not having read the Bible enough or not having prayed enough. And it took the work of the Spirit in my life to break through this guilt, to get me to realize that Jesus knows this already, that Jesus wants me to know him more, and that Jesus is willing to be patient with me as I stumble and work through getting to a point where I love him and his word more than anything else. In our questioning, we get caught up on these whole more or enough words, as if Jesus had set a required number of prayers per day for us to be good Christians. But we don't see that in him. He prays when he needs to and not when he doesn't. What we do see is Jesus pursuing us and asking us to give him everything that we have. Jesus is after your whole heart because he knows that in loving him most of all, you'll come alive and experience life to the fullest. He is faithful and just to forgive us because he wants to set us free from the self-righteous, self-defacing, self-constraining burdens that we try to carry on our own. He doesn't set religious rules on prayer because he knows our hearts couldn't handle it. He just wants you to pray when you need him. And he wants you to need him more and more. He is strong enough to support all of your needs. We answered, how do I pray? With some small, simple practices. Reading, praising, confessing, remembering, asking. And so how do we answer the question, how do I pray more? If you know Jesus, then the good news is you don't have to answer that. You can confess all feelings of failure and you can trust his promise to welcome you with his whole heart. And in time, you'll end up praying more. And if you don't know Jesus, then the good news is he's already made a promise to you too. A promise to embrace you when you turn to him. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me.